Gospel of Luke. And the words to which I would call your attention this morning come to us from the first chapter of Luke's Gospel, verses 26 to 38. As we read God's Word, we do so as an act of worship. It is inerrant and infallible and authoritative in every word. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you in Jesus Christ that you have redeemed us. You have made us your own people. You have caused the blood of Your Son to be poured out. But before He died, Lord, You sent Him to be born of a virgin. To be called Jesus, the Christ, the Anointed One, the One to whom was given the Spirit beyond measure. We ask now that that Spirit would be sent to us. That our hearts might be fanned to a flame for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. This Sunday marks the beginning of the season that we call Advent. That word, of course, referring to the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, His appearance upon the earth, His incarnation. And every year at this time, we reflect on the birth of Christ, our Savior, we refer to His birth often by another term. We call it the Incarnation. We refer to it as Him taking to Himself flesh. Some of you go to a Mexican restaurant. You eat carne asada, right? Christ, that word, took to Himself real flesh. A real body. A real soul. He had a human will. And as we reflect on this season, especially this passage from Luke's Gospel, we ought to remember that not everyone believes in the Incarnation the way that we do. 
there are many, perhaps most, who totally reject the idea that the eternal God would take to himself a body and a soul. In fact, as we go back in history, the early church was beset many times by men who would pop up in one place or another and say, this is not true. One place like that was in the 5th century, there was a man by the name of Nestorius. And uh, Nestorius' name has become uh, uh, acquainted or associated with an error, a heresy. Now, rumor got around that Nestorius disliked a certain description for the Virgin Mary. They would often refer to Mary by this term. They would call her Theotokos, which meant God-bearer, that she bore God in her womb. Well, Nestorius said, I don't like that term. I'm okay with Christ-bearer, but I don't like God-bearer. And so one man who had a political agenda against Nestorius said, you are a heretic. You believe that Christ was born merely a man and not God and man in union. And Nestorius was condemned, probably wrongly so. But as we think about these errors, errors of this type, we we have to remember that to believe in the incarnation of Jesus Christ is to believe some very specific doctrines. Doctrines which Luke has attempted to set down in his gospel so that you would believe them. So that you would put your faith in them. So that when you say, I believe in Jesus the Christ, you would have a very certain understanding of what that means. And in our text this morning, he lays out for us that in Christ Jesus, God chose to dwell among his people to save them from their sins, and to be their ruler. Now, you know that there are four Gospels. What makes Luke's Gospel unique is the way that he presents presents it to us. I want you to turn back with me to the very beginning of chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. We'll read the, the words there to get some of the context of our passage. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So this tells us something about the environment uh, into which Luke's gospel was published. There were lots of gospels going around. Lots of accounts of the life of Christ. Perhaps Matthew's was the first of those accounts, and, and then Mark, and perhaps John. And so Luke, knowing that all of these accounts were floating around, decided to set down what he says was an orderly account of all of these things for his friend, 
Theophilus, and notice why in verse 4. That you may have, do you see the word there? Certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke is writing for the reasoning man. The, the reason that this gospel exists is to bolster the faith of God's people, especially a Greek man who wanted evidence. And so then Luke began his account with the angel Gabriel's announcement of John the Baptist's birth in verse 5 in the reign of Herod, king of Judea. Luke alone recorded Gabriel's announcements to Zechariah and to Mary. We don't find these in any other of the gospel accounts. And so when we get to our passage in verse 26, what do we find? In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. This was the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And the first thing that we notice then from our verses as Luke is setting down this orderly account is the announcement of the incarnation in verses 26 to 33. The announcement of the incarnation. Who was the messenger? Uh, whom did God appoint to bring this message to Mary? And then before that to Zechariah. It was the angel Gabriel. Now we might have a tendency to say, well, that's just a fact. No big deal. We need to know which of the angels it was. It was the angel Gabriel that brought the message. Check that off. I know his name. We know all the names. We know that Joseph was called Joseph and Mary was called Mary and the city was called Nazareth. It's just a name. But you should not pass over Gabriel too quickly. You see, Gabriel is a bookend. Let me invite you to turn back with me to Daniel chapter 9. You may remember that the book of Daniel is God's revelation to Daniel. He was in captivity at this time along with all Israel. And we'll pick up reading in verse 20 of Daniel chapter 9. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, that refers back to uh, Daniel 8, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. So who came to Daniel? Who was the messenger that brought uh, the interpretation of dreams to Daniel? It was the angel Gabriel. Verse 22. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. 
Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, (coughs) to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. So what is it that Gabriel is revealing to Daniel? He is telling him that sometime in the future, marked by 70 weeks, a Redeemer would come. We understand from Jeremiah that these 70 weeks are not actual weeks, they are instead years. And so the point that we come from, or that we find from Daniel, is that in some 490 years, God would send forth a Redeemer to Israel, and what would He do? Put an end to sin. He would atone for iniquity. He would bring in everlasting righteousness to seal both vision and prophecy. You see, Gabriel to Mary is teaching us something. What Daniel was told to expect, Mary was told is now here. Notice the parallel language. Daniel 9.23, you are greatly loved to Mary, O favored one. To Daniel, understand this word. Get the reasoning of it. With Mary, she was reasoning, considering within herself. And then in verse 37 of Luke 1, no word will be impossible with God. All of these things, listen, all of these things are bringing the reader's attention back to Daniel. You are to remember that this is beginning, the beginning of the end. This is the last kingdom that Daniel saw in his vision in chapter 7. Here it is. Here is the one that you have anticipated The clues are here to tell us that this is a fulfillment of the revelation to Daniel. The time is fulfilled for the coming of the Redeemer of Israel. Hence the reason that Jesus began His ministry by saying what? The time is fulfilled. Repent and believe. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Hence the reason that there is significance to the character, the person of this coming one. We we find his lineage in this passage. Notice with me in verses 26 and 27 of Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Gabriel's message now turns to a message about the promised child. Who will he be? What will he be? What was Daniel talking about? Well, we find first of all that he was born to a virgin. You notice there in verse 27 that it was so important. Luke mentioned it twice 
to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And by the way, if you didn't pick up on this, the virgin's name was Mary. We are twice told that she was a virgin. Why do we need to know that? Well, because again, where our attention is being drawn back to the prophecies to Israel. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 tells us that the sign to Israel will be, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. This is a man who had an earthly lineage. This was a man who had an earthly lineage. He was of the house of David, who according to verse 32, Gabriel says, would be given the throne of his father David. And verse 33, that would reign over Jacob, who would have no end to his kingdom. Again, why is this important? Who cares where he comes from, who his father was? Well, because all of these things were important. God had promised certain things to certain people that when they looked for the Messiah, that he would bear certain markers so that when he came, his people would be able to say, look, there he is. And one of those markers was that he would descend from David. Why? Because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised David that his sons would rule over Israel for how long? Forever. That there would be no end to his line. In all of Gabriel's announcing, in all of his message, this, he is not telling Mary that this is the beginning of something new and only new to forget everything that had come before. None of that matters. Here's the new message. Just pay attention to this. Gabriel is announcing to Mary that the time is fulfilled. The time of Israel's lamenting has ended and it is now time for them to rejoice. To rejoice that the king of Israel through David's line would be restored. But you notice something unearthly in the message too, didn't you? We see that he has an earthly lineage. He comes from uh, Mary, who was a virgin, born of a virgin. We see all of that. We know that he'll have a throne. He, he, He will reign. He comes from David's line. But he had other qualities too, didn't he? Not only did he have the qualities of a man, he had the qualities of God. Notice with me in verse 32. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. In Jewish language, the Most High was a a designation reserved for God. He is the Son of God. He is the one who rules over all. Mary's son would be the son of 
God. Here again, we reflect on Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7. God has promised that His eternal Son would be begotten. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. This is a reference to the fact that that the, the Son existed before all time with the Father. He has always been the Son of God. But at a certain point in time, He would be born. And here we learn He would be born of God to be called the Son of God. You, you may have noticed that we missed in going over this, noticing that He has the qualities of man and the qualities of God, that we missed one important aspect, didn't we? What is His name? God named His Son. You will call His name, according to verse 31, Jesus. Gabriel instructed Mary that she should call her son's name Jesus. You know that this is a shortening of the Hebrew term Yahashua or Joshua, as we might call him, which means God saves. In these five letters are captured the reason for this incarnation. The purpose of Jesus' incarnation was the salvation of His people. And now the picture becomes to, begins to come into to view for us as we turn the viewfinder and as everything comes into view and in crisp focus in that name, we see the reason that a, that a virgin would be given a son It was for the salvation of His people. When you utter the name Jesus, you are declaring the reason for His incarnate work. This is one of the reasons we say, don't use it lightly. Don't say it flippantly. Jesus is a name that means God saves. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. One of Jesus' favorite titles was Son of Man. Do you know where that comes from? It comes from Daniel chapter 7. Just as Adam was created with a body and a soul, so the incarnate Christ had a human body and a human soul, which he still possesses. This enabled him in every way. Listen. One of the questions that we ask our children is why, why did Jesus become man? Why did He do that? One of the simple answers to that is because you can't nail a spirit to a cross. He became a man to bear our sins. He became a man. He took your likeness to Himself. Why? Why? so that in your flesh He would experience all the miseries of this life. He didn't float above them. He wasn't the ultimate overcomer. 
He endured it all. He endured the hunger. He endured the pain. He endured the grief, just as you and I do. Yet in one remarkable way, he was totally unlike you. It was impossible for him to sin. And he never did. As Gabriel comes then and makes this announcement to Mary, what are we seeing? What is Luke's message? What is he telling Theophilus? He is telling Theophilus that this is the beginning of the end. This is the final age. These are the end times. The Christ has come. The Savior of Israel has come. And He is God and man in one person. One flesh, two natures, human body, human soul, formed in the womb of a virgin. And yet we notice one remarkable thing, don't we? In verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Literally, she says there, how will this happen since I am not knowing a man? Never have. And there... I think you and I and Theophilus and Luke can all identify. This is the question that we would ask, isn't it? How's this going to happen? And God, because He is kind, was pleased to send that answer to Mary as well. And secondly then, we see not just the announcement of the incarnation, but secondly, the accomplishment of the incarnation from verses 34 to 38. How is this going to happen, Mary said. Well, in real simple terms, Gabriel responded, it's going to be the work of the Holy Spirit. Notice verse 35. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God. What's going to happen? How will this be? I've never known a man. I'm not knowing a man. How will I be pregnant? How will I conceive of a child in my womb in this estate? Well, first of all, we find that the Holy Spirit would come upon her. And the power of the Most High would overshadow her. The term overshadowed there is a term that we find used in other places of the Bible. You probably know that the last chapter of Exodus is chapter 40. And the remarkable thing about Exodus chapter 40 is that Moses finished the construction of the tabernacle. And the last thing that we find, we're left on a cliffhanger at the end of Exodus because the Shekinah glory of God descended upon that constructed tabernacle. And do you know what it did? It overshadowed the tabernacle. This term is used for the descent of God's Shekinah glory. In the same way that Moses, listen, in the same way that Moses prepared an earthly sanctuary for God that he inhabited under the old covenant, so, listen now, the Holy Spirit prepared an earthly tabernacle, a body and a soul to which was joined, according to Colossians 1.19, the fullness of God 
in Christ Jesus was the reality which that wilderness tabernacle symbolized. Here's what Mary is to take away from this, and you and I and Theophilus, that the child conceived in Mary's womb was not the work of nature alone. That child was a supernatural work. For this reason, Luke says, as Gabriel recounted, this reason the child was called holy. Why could he be called holy? Because he did not receive that corrupt nature that comes from mankind. He was formed by the immediate work of the Holy Spirit and the divine Christ joined to him. So that Athanasius would say, he simultaneously inhabited that body and gave it life. He was simultaneously joined to that body and filling the universe. He was not marred by the corruption of human nature. In fact, upheld by that divine nature, it was totally impossible for him to sin. But Gabriel, Gabriel perceives that this is perhaps too much for Mary to comprehend, too much for her to take in, too much for her to process. Well, like, like you, perhaps, she's asking her question, okay, give me a little more detail there. Tell me exactly what does it mean the Holy Spirit's going to come upon me? How does that work? Tell me about that part again. Give me some definitions to these terms. He's going to overshadow me. The Most High will be there. What does that mean? Notice what Gabriel gives her. He gives her a sign that even though she doesn't understand these things fully, God will do it. Verse 26, 36, I'm sorry. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. God instructed Gabriel to uplift Mary's wilting confidence by telling her about her kinswoman, Elizabeth. Here, you and I are reminded of God's kindness to us. Psalm chapter 103, verses 13 to 14 say this, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. Listen, for he knows our frame that we are dust. It pleased God to lift Mary's confidence by saying, go talk to your, your cousin Elizabeth and see what God has done in her, in her old age. She has conceived a child. And this is a sign to you of God's power even as God dealt with Mary, He demonstrates, listen, how He delights to condescend to His people to strengthen and uphold Him. This is, in some way, Luke saying to Theophilus, even though your mind may be filled right now with, with doubts, even though there are questions flooding your mind, one thing that you should never question is God's power. 
If you read what the prophets have said, the historians have said, they've demonstrated to you the power of God over and over and over again that what He says He will do, He can do. So that what do we read in verse 37? For nothing will be impossible with God. Do you know that Gabriel is quoting Scripture there? This isn't the first time that God has said those words to someone. In fact, if you went back to Genesis chapter 18, you would find a young lady by the name of Sarah who was sitting inside her tent laughing at the pre-incarnate Christ telling Abraham that he would have a child at 99. And in that circumstance, the Lord said to Abraham and to Sarah, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is there any word of His that He cannot accomplish? None of God's promises are empty. None of them are vain. He has proved over and over that He is able to do what He promises to do. That you can understand. You may not be able to get your mind, Theophilus, around the overshadowing of the Most High. You may not be able to get your mind around the joining of the divine nature to the human nature. But you can get your mind around this. Nothing is impossible for God. Notice the servant's response in verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Literally, we, we may have given Mary a little credit here. Literally, Mary said, it could possibly be to me according to your word. Young Mary, maybe a 14 or a 15-year-old girl, empowered by the Holy Spirit, believed the revelation of God through Gabriel. Her tentative response reminds us of an important truth. Faith, Theophilus, does not mean an absence of all questions. It does not mean that you are emptied of every single one of your doubts. Sincere faith means that we receive everything God has chosen to reveal in exactly the way God has chosen to reveal it. And where God has chosen not to reveal, we don't press. Further, sincere faith instructs us that God has the answer. God has the answer to every one of our questions. Even if He has not chosen to reveal them to us at this very moment. Of one thing, we may be certain. That in Christ Jesus, God chose to dwell among His people. To deliver us from the power of sin. And to reign over us forever. You may have some friends who doubt these words of the Incarnation. Perhaps you have some Mormon friends or some Jehovah's Witness friends who who would not take these words at, at face value. 
Perhaps you would respond just as John Cassian did to Nestorius. What do you say now, you heretic? Those who deny this reality make themselves wiser than God. In Christ Jesus, God was pleased to give His Son, the one who knew no sin, but who knew every one of your weaknesses, every one of your miseries, and chose to bear that in your behalf. May we all be pleased to say as Mary, let it be to us according to your word. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful to you. This this work, like many of your works, is such a mystery to us. Why would you choose to create a world? Why would you choose to permit Adam to sin against you? Why would you permit sin to enter into your world? Why would you permit it, uh, cause it to be done this way? How does this bring the most glory to you? Why would you call Abraham a moon-worshipping man in the land of the Chaldees to become the father of a multitude of nations? Why would you draw people such are as seated in these chairs who are full of sin, who are not righteous, to come and hear the blessed words of God and to give life? Father, we thank you that we are not saved because of the power of our faith. We are saved by the object of our faith, Christ Jesus. We ask that you would be pleased to strengthen us now, to give us a great conviction over the nature of Christ's incarnation, to grant us a true and a living salvation in him. We pray for his sake. Amen.